Well, the question for today is how to go about reading the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Here we have focused so much attention as students of the Bible because here, of course, are the creation narratives. And in Genesis 1, we read about this amazing seven-day structure. And then in Genesis 2, we read about God taking the human whom he had built and placing him in the garden. So these are critical passages to our faith and our belief system as Christians, but we struggle to read them, don't we? And we struggle to interpret them and argue about how to interpret them. So our question is how to start the reading. Well, the first issue we have as we take a look at Genesis 1 and 2 in particular is we are looking at some really old material, a genre that we can't easily or fully identify because it is a genre that is so ancient. Is this history? Is it myth? Is it poetry? And all of these categories seem to escape us as we try to identify Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and the following chapters up through Genesis 11. So this puts us at a disadvantage as we attempt to interpret these books. We don't know exactly what kind of genre we're dealing with, but we do realize that these initial narratives are foundational to our faith, foundational to the biblical witness, and something we need to get our minds around. So we'll move on to the second critical question of hermeneutics. If I can't exactly identify a genre, can I identify what the original biblical author is trying to communicate to me? And of all the questions we ask interpreting a text, this has got to be the most important. Because of course our biblical authors are the ones who are being placed under the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's our biblical authors who have the authority to tell us this is canon, this is the Word of God. So as I look at any text, this has got to be my controlling question. What is this author trying to say to me? Not what is it I want to know, but what is it this person is trying to communicate? And of course, this person is long gone. I can't sit down and ask him questions, but I can take a very careful look at the text that he's left for me. So when we take a look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we've got to first ask that question. What is this author trying to say? And one of the first barriers we crash into is that the accounts of creation in these two chapters seem very different. In the first account, we have a very strict structure. There are seven days presented to us, and there's a chorus, isn't there? Uh, there was evening, there was morning, and day X has passed, and God saw it was good, almost like a song. And with this very specific structure, we see that we've got a beginning, we've got a middle, and we've got an end. Which means with Genesis 1, we could pick up that piece of literature, we could drop it anywhere in the Bible, and it would make sense. So that structure sets it apart. Whereas when we move into Genesis 2, we see the beginning of a narrative. A narrative that's going to begin with God planting a garden in the east, is going to run through the creation of this species we know as humanity, their fall and rejection, their cursing, will go through the Tower of Babel, Noah's flood, and really that narrative won't come to a conclusion until Genesis 11. So that piece is not isolated. And then we start taking a look at language. In Genesis 1, God is referred to by the generic word for God. It's Elohim in Hebrew. Whereas in Genesis 2, he's spoken of as Yahweh Elohim with a specific covenantal name that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. 
we see that in Genesis 1, God creates with the verb bara, which is a verb that is almost exclusively reserved for deity, whereas in Genesis 2, he creates with yetzar, which is a verb that's used of craftsmen when they're forming a pot or carving a statue. We see that in Genesis 1, the chronology leaves the creation of humanity to the end of the story, whereas in Genesis 2, the creation of humanity is embedded in the story. Now, a full treatment of this is going to take more than seven minutes, so let's focus in on just Genesis 1 and that week. And in that week, what do we do with those seven days? What do we do with this perfect week that's being presented to us that's crowned with the Sabbath ordinance offered to Moses on the side of Mount Sinai? Well, the first thing we do as modern Americans is we ask, what about those dinosaurs? That's what we do. We look into this text and we try to find the fossil record. So we create a theory like the gap theory, which argues that in Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the text goes on supposedly to read that there was war in heaven and Satan lured a third of the angels away from God and there was war in heaven and God finally had victory and cast Satan down to the earth and then Genesis 1-2 and the earth was formless and void. I'm not a real fan of that theory. I wouldn't be a fan of someone dropping a paragraph into one of the books I'd published without asking me. I'm not sure God's real keen about us dropping a paragraph into Genesis chapter 1 either. What else do we do with Genesis 1? Well, we create the geological era theory, the idea that each of the seven days of creation is attached to a geological era, and that makes room for evolutionary theories and for dinosaurs and for fossil records. Then we also create, well, or read the seven 24-hour day theory, uh, which is an obvious read of this text because it does speak of seven 24-hour days. And then we debate which of these theories could be true. Well, of all of these theories, I would like to ask the question, what is the biblical author working with? If I were to ask him, exactly what are you trying to communicate to me? Would I wind up with dinosaurs or fossil records? Would I wind up with a gap theory? Or might there be something else going on in this text? <music>